Great to see everyone here this morning and excited for what God wants to do here. Um, We are just a week and a half away from Christmas, and uh, this morning I want to look at a a passage that is often looked at this time of year. You know, um, Christmas is a is a wonderful time of the year, and it's a it's a joyful time of the year. It's it's uh, you know the song on the radio. It's the most wonderful time of the year, and yet for many for many people, and really quite frankly, a lot of people, it's not a wonderful time of the year. Um, for many people, it's uh, if they were to sing a song, they might say something like it's the most depressing time of the year, or it's the hardest time of the year. And there are lots of reasons for that, and 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 and. For many of us, I mean, I would, I would put myself in this category. It's, it's, it's a great time of the year, but it's also a challenging time of the year. Um, it seems like the pressures of life are compounded this holiday season. Um, the financial pressures, uh, the, the sadness over someone that we are no longer with when we gather together with family and friends this time of year, and so-and-so is not there. Uh, that can make it. That can make it uh, not not just glee and giggles. Um, there's relational problems that we are facing or that we're in the midst of seem to be compounded this time of year <clears throat> when we want to be in unity with the people we love and and we realize we're not. Um, if that's you, or if that describes you at all, if you find yourself in this place where this is a, this, I enjoy this time of year, but it's just, but it's hard too. God really wants to meet you today. Now, he wants to meet all of us today, but he wants to meet you in a really powerful way. Like I said, this is a well-known story. <clears throat> in this last week, or really starting last Sunday, I, I shared kind of this message last Sunday night at, at Bethel Mission. Had had just an amazing time there. Um, but last Sunday afternoon, I just, as I was looking at this story, I, for some reason I, I was able to put myself in Joseph's shoes, maybe like I hadn't before. I, I mean, we know this story well if we've been in church for any length of time. But I was, I put my, I was like put in his skin or something. Um, because this, this must have been an incredibly challenging Time for Joseph. Just think about what he was going through. He was engaged to a woman he loved. Um, they were to be married. It was, it was more than just an engagement. They were, they were betrothed, so it was like a legal engagement. It wasn't just a, a wedding ring that could, could be called off simply. There were some legal ramifications to it. He loved her, thought she loved him. They were to be married. And she shows up someday and says, Hey, Joseph, I need to talk to you about something. I'm pregnant. Now imagine, how would you respond? Here, here's how I imagine Joseph responding. You're pregnant? Are you serious? Who's the man? Who's the guy? It wasn't me, obviously. And, and Mary, you know, tries to calm him down, say, no, no, Joseph, just listen. Now imagine how incredulous this story sounds, all right? Joseph, no, no, you don't understand. Let me, let me explain. Yes, Joseph says, please explain. Well, you see, Gabriel, you know, the angel Gabriel, he showed up and visited me. You know, Gabriel from the book of Daniel, the, uh, the angel of the Lord, he, he showed up and, and appeared to me. And, 
And he told me that I was going to give birth to a child who was going to be great. In fact, he was going to be so great, he was going to be called Son of the Most High. Would you believe that story? Probably not, right? Joseph didn't. He thought, he's probably thinking to himself, okay, really? And Mary went on to say, listen, I didn't understand how this was going to happen either because I'm a virgin, right? I've never been with a man. And, and, and Gabriel went on to tell me that the Holy Spirit was going to come upon me and God was going to overshadow me and I was going to conceive and give birth to a son who was going to be the son of God. Sounds outrageous. And Joseph thought just that. He was thinking in his mind, I'm sure either she is out of her mind, delusional, like she's one of these wackos that, you know, hallucinating or something. Or that she is just trying to pull a fast one and she has been with another man. Either way, he didn't buy the story. I imagine him saying, okay, all right, whatever. And walking away thinking, how do I get out of this engagement? Right? And we know that from Matthew 1 because it says that he was thinking about all these things and he was considering how to put her away. Now, he was a good man, so he wanted to do it quietly. He didn't want to, give, he didn't want to heap any more shame on Mary than she already was going to endure. So he wanted to put her away quietly, but he indeed wanted to put her away. He wanted to break off this betrothal or this engagement. I don't know about you, but I, I, I imagine Joseph is confused, hurt, disillusioned, maybe angry. And it's at this time that an angel appears to him. And we know this story well. Let me read in Matthew 1, 21 to 25. It says, it's in your bulletin. It says, the angel appeared to Joseph. And the angel, let me just back up. The angel appeared to Joseph and and began to tell Joseph, listen, don't be afraid to take Mary to be your wife, right? Because this child is from the Holy Spirit. So the angel of the Lord is confirming these things to Joseph. In verse 21, it says, this is the angel speaking to Joseph. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, the prophet Isaiah. Verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This prophecy that was given here in, in, in verse 23, said the angel spoke and said, this word that I'm speaking to you is to fulfill a prophecy given to the prophet Isaiah. It's amazing. This prophecy was 700 years prior to the coming of Jesus. The word was first spoken to uh, by Isaiah. The word of the Lord came from Isaiah to Ahaz, king of Judah. Now, Ahaz was not a good king. But God was merciful to him because Judah was a southern kingdom. Israel was a northern kingdom. Israel and Syria were marching on Jerusalem. 
Ahaz sees this happening, these two armies coming at him. He's freaking out. And Isaiah comes with a word from the Lord saying this, right? There's going to be a miracle child that's going to be born. And his name is going to be Emmanuel, which means God with us. In other words, in the midst of Judah's trouble, God's promise was that he was going to come to them and he was going to be with them. Now, there was an immediate fulfillment to this prophecy But as believers in Jesus Christ, this side, right? That was 700 years prior to Jesus. Then we have Jesus coming here in this passage or being born shortly after. And then we're 2,000 years later. We know that this is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. That Jesus is God with us. In a way that that God had never been with his people before. Some of you might say, well, what's the big deal about God with us, you know? And uh, Maybe you wouldn't ask that. God dwelling among his people is the climactic and greatest blessing in all the Old Testament. Exodus 29, 46, God says, speaking to about the Jewish people, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God. And they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary. Excuse me. I messed up. Excuse me. They shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt. That I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Now in the Old Testament, God's presence dwelling among his people was always temporary and provisional. It was temporary and provisional. God dwelt among them. He was in a tabernacle and the people would camp around the tabernacle. God dwelt in the midst of the temple and the people would come there and worship and perform rituals and sacrifice. Well, the high priest would perform sacrifices. But Isaiah chapter 7 is pointing forward, which we see here in Matthew 1, to something greater than that. Pointing forward like Ezekiel 37 does. Ezekiel 37, 27 and 28 says this. This is Ezekiel prophesying. I think of what we're talking about today in its greatest and consummate fulfillment. My dwelling place will be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel, when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. Some might be thinking here today. I wouldn't be surprised if some some are thinking this. God dwelling among us doesn't sound that great. Perhaps misperception. Wrong ideas of what happens when God is among us. Some might think, I don't want him that close, right? He's just this cosmic boss that's just telling people what to do. He's like this cosmic or this giant rule giver. He just tells us, you can't do this, and yes, you can do that. And all the things he says we can't do, we really want to do. And all the things he says we can do, we could care less about. But consider Psalm 36. Psalm 36, I read this this last week. That's why I'm I'm bringing this up today. 
so sweet and precious. I think this is what God wants us to think when we think about God dwelling among us, when we think of God with us. Psalm 36, how precious is your steadfast love, O Lord. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house and you give them to drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light, we see light. What is it like when God comes and dwells among us? What is it like when God is with us in power and in a dynamic way? Well, Psalm 36 says it's like feasting. It's like drinking. It's like a fountain of life. It's like light. Consider the opposite of those things. The opposite of feasting is famine and to be famished and hungry. The opposite of drinking and being satisfied in the river of God's delights is to be thirsty and parched and desperate for something to drink. The opposite of a fountain of life is death. And the opposite of light is darkness. Listen, we don't have two armies marching against our homes. But Emmanuel, God with us, needs to be more than a Hallmark card sentimental feeling because we all have problems. Not as big as Ahaz, perhaps, right? We don't have two armies coming against us, but we live in a world with trouble. Jesus said we do. He said we'll endure trouble. As we walk on this narrow road, we need to know what it means for God to be with us. And he is with us. So here's what I want to do in our time remaining. I want to first dig into this phrase a little deeper, God with us. And then just at the end, I just want to take a bit of time just imagining together, what if this is true? What if he actually is with us? What if God is with us in Christ? So let's look at this phrase, God with us. I want to take word by word, God with us. So what does it mean that God is with us? Well, who is God? The Jewish people, you know, there, there was the name uh, Yahweh given to God. It was, the, it was the supreme name given to God. And they were always careful not to just throw that word around. Because God was holy, right? They, they cared about the name of God. And similarly, we throw, well, I shouldn't say similarly, we often throw the name of God around without a whole lot of thought about what we're saying. So I want to just take a bit of time to fill this in. Who is God? Who is he? The Westminster Shorter Catechism from back like in the 1600s asks a great question. I think gives a great answer. It asks the question, what is God? The answer it gives is God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Let's think about that for a moment. God is a spirit. He, does, he is not uh, limited by spatial dimensions like you and I are. He can be anywhere all the time, right? He's not limited by time like you and I are. He stands outside of time. He is a spirit. He is infinite. 
God is full and overflowing in himself. He has no deficiencies at all. You and I, our lives are marked by, in ourselves, deficiencies, limitations. God is not. He is eternal. Okay, I said this earlier. He stands outside of time. He had no beginning. He will have no end. Everything that's created is in, is, has been created in relation to him. He is eternal. And he is all of these things in his being and who he is. But listen to this. He is a spirit. He's a, he is, I'm sorry, he's unchangeable. He is unchangeable. This is amazing. He's unchangeable. Isn't it good news to know we don't have to wake up tomorrow wondering if God's going to be moody? If he's going to be in a bad mood. If he's just going to, you know, like fly off the handle and say, you know what, forget you guys. I'm done with this plan. No, he is unchangeable. You and I change our minds all the time. God doesn't. He doesn't have to. He knows all the information. He has all the information right at hand, and he does not change. He is all of these things in his wisdom. God is not gathering Uh, unknown information from this place and that place so he can construct a wise plan. He has all wisdom in himself. And this is a God who's with us. He is all of these things in his power. He is unlimited and unchangeable in his power. He has all power. This is a God who is with us. He is all of these things In his holiness, in his justice, God never perverts justice. In his goodness, God never does anything wrong, ever. And he is with us. He is all of these things in his truth. His truth is firm and steadfast and unchanging. This is the God who's with us. He doesn't fit in the Hallmark card. He just doesn't fit in that. He's way too big for that. I I like Hallmark cards, okay? But you understand what I'm saying. Let's go further. Consider the names of the names given to God in the Bible. We have a book at home. It's called God's Names. It's it's a devotional book for kids. But I tell you, when when I've gone through that with my kids, I've gotten as much out of it, maybe more than my kids. I love this book. And it goes through the names of God because the names given to God tell us about him. And this is the God we're talking about today. Consider these names given to God. There are many more than this. Elohim, he is strong creator. Yahweh, he is the eternally self-existent God. He is El Shaddai, the God Almighty. He is El Elyon, or the Most High God. He is Al-Kanah, or jealous God. He is jealous for his glory. He is jealous for his people. He is Jehovah El-Emet, the Lord God of truth. He is Adonai, or sovereign Lord. He is El-Roi, or the God who sees. You might say, sees what? Everything. There's nothing that gets past his notice. 
He is Jehovah Shammah, or the Lord is there. He is Jehovah Sabaoth, the Lord of armies. He is Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. He is Jehovah Or, the Lord is light. He is Jehovah Shalom, the Lord is peace. He is Jehovah Rapha, the Lord is our healer. He is Jehovah Majinanu, or the Lord our defense. This is God with us. This is who he is. And he's with his people. Isn't that good news? Let's go further. Let's consider just some of the attributes of God. And there's going to be overlap. I get this. But the wisdom of God, the goodness of God, the justice of God, the mercy of God. God is rich in mercy for undeserving people. The grace of God. The patience of God. I am so thankful for God's patience. Perfect in patience, unchangeable in his patience. The humility of God, which we is on, put on full display at Christmas time when God humbled himself by becoming a man. The sovereignty of God and the perfect love of God. This is God with us. This is who he is. Isn't this amazing news? Let's even go further. Let's consider just briefly some of the images given to God. I don't mean images like statues, but some of the pictures we get of what God is like. He is called Father, Shepherd, a rock. Who doesn't need a rock to stand on? That's our God, and he's with us. He is called Fountain. Jesus is called Bread, Brother, Savior, king, warrior. God is a warrior for his people. He's called friend. He's called helper and comforter. He is called lion and light and lamb. This is our God and he is with us. So God is bigger better than we could ever possibly imagine. This is the God who's with us. All right, let's look at the word with. So we looked at God. This is who God is. But he's with us. He is with us. When Jesus came, God came to be with us in a way unlike any prior time in history. So what does it mean that God is with us? Well, we could fill in a lot. I'm sure we could say this a lot of different ways. I, I try to break it up in just three ways. God is with us in nearness. God is with us in nearness. He came down to be with us. He came down to be near to us. I love John 1. It says that Jesus, the eternal word of God, came to his own. He came to his own, right? He came to his people and he has come to you and I to be near to us. He came to be near to us so that we could know his presence. He came to be so near to us that the New Testament says something amazing. It says he is actually in us. You can't get more near than that, right? 
Colossians 1.27 says, This mystery that was hidden, hidden from ages past has now been revealed. And it's this, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Not only is he in us, but the Bible says we are also in him. Paul uses that phrase over and over and over in his epistles. He says, you are in Christ. You are in him. You have had a change of address. You belong in Jesus now. He came to be near to us. Now, we know Christian doctrine teaches that God is everywhere at all times, right? He's not, and I said this earlier, he's not limited to one spot at a time. Or even, a, even a, a whole lot of spots, but a limited number of spots. He is omnipresent. So what does it mean that he comes near to us? Simply this, that he comes in a special, intimate way to his people. In a way that he doesn't come just to everyone in the world. He is everywhere at all times, but he comes near in intimacy to his people. But I think we need to go deeper than this. Not only does he come near to us, but he, comes, he, he is with us in the sense that he is on our side. The God who is with us, he's not just, if he was near to us, but we didn't know if he was on our side, that would not be good news. <laughs> right? I mean, he might just slap us and... Take us out at any moment if he wasn't on our side. But he is a God who is on our side. He is for us. He is with us in the sense that he's totally for us. It's like God is saying, through thick and thin, I am with you. No matter what, I'm on your side. We sing a song here um, called, You Make Me Brave. And I, there's a line in that song that I just... I love so much, and it's very simple, and it's just declaring to God, you are for us, you are not against us. And I think as God's people, we need to know that God is with us in the sense that he is for us. Romans 8.32 says, if God is for us, who is against us? And that's, Paul is not saying that flippantly because he had lots of opposition. He had lots of people against him. And he knew that Christians would as well. Jesus made this very clear before he left. But he's just saying, if God is with us and God is for us, then in the final analysis, it doesn't matter who's against us. It just doesn't matter. But I think we can even go deeper when we consider God being with us. <clears throat> he's near to us. He's for us. But I think this, this gets to the heart of what it means for God to be with us. It means this. In Christ, God has entered permanently into our reality. God has real and true and experiential solidarity with human beings. Uh, John Stott, a, a the, um, theologian, incredible man over in uh, Great Britain. Before, he died a few years ago, but a long, quite a while. I think it was in his commentary on Galatians. He was saying how um, he could have, when he came to faith in Christ, he was 
reflecting back on that. And he said he could have never believed in the Christian message or in God in general. But when he was confronted with the incarnation of Jesus Christ and that God is not just transcendent and distant from the earth and from the human predicament, that's when he embraced Christianity. Jesus came down and became a human being. He is with us in the sense that he is together with us. He is with us in the sense that he shares and fellowships with our lives. This last week, I found great comfort in that. I don't know if it, if it comforts you, but to know that Jesus is with us at that level is so encouraging. Hebrews 4 says that Jesus is a high priest who can sympathize with us. He has sympathy for us because he knows our weaknesses. And he knows our weaknesses because he was made just like us. He was made just like you and me. He experienced weakness and weariness and disappointment and people turning their back on him and being poor. And he experienced all of this. And so he can sympathize with us. Charles Spurgeon said, God is with us in all of our life's pilgrimage. See, we often, maybe we don't, I do this. I think of God is with us and all this, but like, but I go through life, I mean, I'm just thinking consciously, I go through life kind of on my own. And then I call out to God to invade and come and, and do things, but I don't live in light, in the light of him, often I don't, being with me in all of my life's pilgrimage. And that means all of it. When we're sleeping, when we're at work, when we're struggling with temptation, when we fall into sin, when we rejoice, when we are weeping, all of these things, he is with us. So we are never alone. We do not face trials on our own. We do not weep on our own. We do not fight against the devil on our own. We do not rejoice on our own. We do not face temptation on our own. We do not struggle with sin on our own. I mean, imagine, imagine if we like, when we, when we, when we blew it. If it was like, well, then God is not with us. Oh man, that'd be horrible. We need him with us when we're struggling with sin, don't we? We need him with us. These are things that go through my mind at times. I think it's been good for me to come back to this truth this week. We do not struggle with fear on our own. We do not face loss on our own. We do not struggle with loneliness on our own. We will not face death on our own. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And this is not just a temporary arrangement for a season, um, but this can be our confident expectation for the rest of our lives. We see here Matthew 1, Jesus is called Emmanuel, God with us. If you go forward to Matthew 28, after Jesus is raised from the dead, 
And before he goes to be with the Father, he has a message for his disciples. It's called the Great Commission. And the last words he said were this. And lo, I am with you always to the very end of the age. We are never alone. You may think that you don't have very many, very many people to walk through this life with. And that may be true. I mean, I, you may not have a lot of close relations. But if you have Emmanuel, you're okay. I'm okay. <clears throat> Paul knew this very well. <clears throat> this truth of God being with him, this truth of Emmanuel. <clears throat> Toward the end of Paul's life, he wrote this in 2 Timothy 4. He said, at my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be held against them or charged against them. Paul standing before Caesar, more than likely, I mean, like literally 10 feet in front of him, he's standing there because he's, in, as he's writing 2 Timothy, he's imprisoned in Rome. Standing before Caesar, Giving, uh, giving a reason for why he shouldn't be put to death. And all of his friends mysteriously were busy that day. None of them showed up. He says they, no one came to his defense. They all deserted him. Now, he wasn't bitter. He said, may it not be charged against them. But here's what he says next. This is amazing. No one came. None of my close friends came. Verse 17. But the Lord stood by, stood by me and strengthened me. This is what it means for God to be with us. Okay, so let's look at the word us. God with us. God with us. And God with us. Think with me, who was Jesus revealed to when he was born or leading up to his birth and at his birth? And who rejected him? Jesus was revealed to, there might be, you might be able to think of a few others, but I'm, I just picked out four main groups or people. The Magi, the shepherds, Mary, and Joseph. The Magi. We call them three kings. They weren't really kings. They maybe weren't even wise men. They were magicians from the east, maybe from Babylon. They were pagan magicians, right? They were not, I mean, nothing worthy about them. The shepherds, they just were laborers, right? There's nothing impressive about them in and of themselves. They were shepherds out in the field, Dirty, doing this dirty job of caring for these lambs, these sheep. Mary, I mean, this just a young virgin girl. She had no, she had no prospects of being anyone great. None. Joseph, a carpenter. Who rejected Jesus at his coming? Herod, a king. And the proud religious, namely the chief priests and scribes. God is with us. Who's the us? It is the undeserving, 
who receive grace. It is the imperfect who receive forgiveness. It is the troubled who lean on Emmanuel. It is the weak who receive his strength. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 and following, Paul is talking to the people of Corinth who, who um, he wanted to correct some things. He said, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were strong. Not many of you were great. He was not trying to puff them up. He said, but God chose the foolish things to shame the wise, and God chose the weak, weak things to shame the strong, and God chose um, the, uh, the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are, so that in all things God would be glorified. God loves revealing himself and being strong for and coming to those who are weak and troubled and undeserving. Isaiah 57, I love this verse. It says that God is the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity. It's like, okay, he's big, he's powerful, he's out there. And it says, um, God dwells, it goes on to say, God dwells in two places. One place you and I cannot go and one place we can. He dwells in a high and holy place outside of our reach. But he also dwells among the lowly, the humble. So we can't go to that place, but we can go down. Who is the us that's being talked about here? It is those who are humbled, those who, let me put it this way. Well, let me, let me go to the text, actually. Um, the angel of the Lord said to Joseph, You shall call this little boy's name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. Who is the us? It's God's people who are saved from their sins. Who are the us? It is those who love Jesus Emmanuel as Savior from their sins. I love how it's just emphatic here. The angel says, he shall save his people. People from their sins. He's not going to try to do it. He's going to do it. John the Baptist, when Jesus came on the scene in John chapter, I think maybe later in John 1. Jesus is coming. John the Baptist is baptizing people. Jesus comes and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He takes away our sin. He saves us from our sin. Who are the us? Who is God with? It is with the humble who love Jesus, their Savior. The undeserving who know it. The imperfect who know it. The troubled who know it. The weak who know it. And they want to receive all of grace from Emmanuel. From God with us. Romans 8 tells us how Jesus has saved us from our sin. So the angel said his name shall be Jesus. He's going to save his people. He's going to save us from our sins. Romans 8 tells us how. It says God sent his own son. It's Christmas, right? God sent his son down in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. 
Jesus came on an assignment from the Father, on a mission from the Father, to bear in his own body, in his own. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He was not sinful, but he came in the likeness of you and I, in the likeness of sinful flesh. And God condemned sin in the flesh, in the body of Jesus, your sin and my sin, all who trust in him. And by that sacrifice, he saves his people from their sin. Christmas is the good news that God does not come to us with a sword and with words of war. We sang earlier, right? The angel appeared to the shepherds and they were afraid and they had a right to be. Usually when God shows up, when the glory of God comes, it's a fearful thing. They say, don't be afraid. And what they say? Saviors come. This is glory to God and not war on earth, but peace on earth. The good news of Christmas is that God does not come with a sword. He doesn't come with words of war, but he comes with a white flag. He holds out a white flag. It's in the hands of a baby born in a manger. He, he holds out a white flag in the, hand, in the hands of a, a humble man who lived a perfect life under the law. It's a white flag held in the hand of someone who was nailed to a forsaken cross and is still held in the hands of one who, though he is at the right hand of the Father, still bears in his hands the nail marks. This is God with us. This is who God is. And he's with us. What if this is true? I mean, what if, what if we really believe this? Not, not, not a good feeling here on Sunday, and then we walk out in the real world. It's like, well, but when, when you're in the real world, you've got real problems, right? But what if this is totally true? What is, uh, I heard, one time I heard somebody say, I can't remember his name. He said, what if we really believed what we, say we, what we say we believe, and we believed that, was, that it was really true. He just kind of said this redundant thing like, what if we really believe this? What if God really is with you, and he's really for you, even you, in Jesus? I'm not, I mean, even me. Okay, I know me. Well, he is. If Christ is your Savior, he is. Period. But let's back up just a second. Since he has come to us in the way that we've described today, here's the amazing thing. This morning, right now, whether you were saved 20 years ago or you don't know if you're saved at all, come to him. We don't need to hesitate, hesitate to come to him at all. Right? He's God with us. He is this massive, gigantic God who holds the world in his hand. And yet he's come to us in Christ. 
And he's come to undeserving, weak, troubled people. And the amazing thing is, if he comes to us this way, then we don't need to hesitate or question at all whether we may come to him. We don't need to second guess whether the offer still stands. I suppose there, there certainly will be a day when the offer won't stand anymore. But as long as we have breath and Jesus has not returned, the offer is open. Come to me, all who are weary, heavy laden, who are burdened, and I will give you rest. We may come to Jesus and drink our fill of him today. And be full of him and filled with him. For he is Emmanuel. He is God with us. Let me ask you. What fear could we not face if God is truly with us? Those things that give us these, this, this anxiety, this nagging anxiety, which sometimes flares up and we just almost lose our minds. If God is truly with us, is it possible to be free from those things? Yeah. What temptation and sin could not be overcome and put to death if God is with us? What loss would not be more than compensated for if God is with us? What circumstance could not be faced with courage? I mean, scary circumstances. We've had them or we do or we will. But which, what could not be faced with courage if God is with us? What impossibility is truly there if God is with us? Nothing's impossible. And even when we face death someday, when we're old and gray, I trust. Can we not face it with absolute confidence that God is with us? Absolutely. As John Wesley was near death, his friends gathered around him. He died an old man, I think, 88 or something. And he uttered these words. The best of all is that God is with us. And they hung around a little bit longer. And, and uh, a few moments later, John Wesley raised his feeble arms one more time. And he said these words, the same words. The best of all is God is with us. Isn't that the best news in the world? That God is with us? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this amazing truth that you are Emmanuel, God with us. <clears throat> we don't have to stumble through this time of year um, discouraged, anxious, fearful buried with trouble. I pray this morning that you would help us just to open up our hearts to you, 
that you'd crack open our crack open our hearts and that we would let you in and uh, and come to you since you have come to us in this manner that we may come to you boldly and experience you and know you i mean just that 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 we would choose and decide by your grace to face all of life with Emmanuel. The incredibly joyful things with you at the center of it, Emmanuel's God with us, the excruciatingly difficult things with Emmanuel, God with us. Oh Lord, that would make all the difference. That would make all the difference. God, I pray that you would do this in our lives and hearts. I pray that not one person would leave here today without an encounter with Emmanuel. You, the God who is with us, now and forever. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.